Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be exploring how to visually tell stories about climate change. Climate journalism fulfills a unique role in covering one of the most pressing issues of our time. From environmental predictions and scientific data to reporting from climate summits and conventions, journalists play a crucial role when contributing to the public debate on the climate crisis. So how can data visualizations be used to help inform audiences, spur them to act, and be part of the solution? To delve further into this, we caught up with Duncan Gear, an information designer and data storyteller based in Sweden. Peying Lau, head and co-founder of The Continentalist in Singapore, and Rodolfo Almeida, a freelance visual journalist and researcher from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Duncan Gear, Peying Lau, and Rodolfo Almeida. Welcome to Conversations with Data. Uh, it's great to have you all on today. Um, I thought we'd start with you paying uh, from the Continentalist. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the work you're doing in Singapore. Yes. Um, hi, everyone. And hi, Tara. Um, yeah, I'm Ping. I'm from Continentalist, or rather I'm the head and co-founder of Continentalist. We're a data-driven editorial publication and also a studio um, based in Singapore. And our mission is really to bridge the divide between the research sector and the public using visual data stories to uh, make information and data more accessible to the audiences within Asia and to sort of put uh, what we call Asia in the forefront of global conversations and change people's perspective and the way they talk about the continent or its cultures. And Rodolfo? Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. Uh, my name is Rodolfo Meida. Uh, I'm a Sao Paulo-based visual journalist. And I started working with DataViz about seven years ago at the Nexo Journal Newsroom, which is an explanatory journalism outlet from Brazil. And there I got to produce charts and visual stories on different subjects from economics to culture, lifestyle, health, well-being, and whatnot. And that really gave me the opportunity to develop my database skills. Uh, nowadays, the bulk of my work is comprised of freelance data visualizations and stories that I produce for clients who are uh, journalistic outlets reporting on the climate or third sector initiatives and NGOs, both in Brazil and uh, abroad, uh, and mostly dealing with social environmental issues. Uh, and I also have a part-time partnership with Nucleo Jornalismo, which is an outlet that uh, investigates big tech here in Brazil. And I do produce some database for them, but most of the work done there is some general art direction and design. Duncan? Hi, everyone. My name is Duncan Gear. I'm an information designer and a data storyteller, and I live in Sweden. Um, most of the work that I do is generally helping organizations to solve <clears throat> to solve social problems and communicate their data stories. I work with clients like Conservation International, Gates Foundation, Project Drawdown. Um, I also work part-time for the climate charity Possible, and I am a co-founder of the Loud Numbers Data Sonification Studio and the Elevate Data Learning Community. Brilliant. Um, thanks for your introductions, everyone. Um, Duncan, let's start with you. You've been on the podcast before. Um, some say audiences need to hear a wide variety of stories to really understand climate change and its complexity. And, you know, as you said, you, you've worked as a journalist, but also you're an information designer. You work in a lot of different sectors, you know, telling data stories. So I just wonder if you could weigh in on this for us. You know, what is most engaging for audiences when it comes to visualizing stories around climate solutions and climate change? I think in my experience, what's most engaging for general audiences is stories that are around people. I think it's so easy when you're working with climate data to start writing stories about temperature anomalies or sea level rise or atmospheric forcings or other kind of technical terms like this, because those are the metrics that your data will come in. But I think a lot of those things are a bit too abstract for a lot of audiences. They don't necessarily care about model outputs and things like that. What they care about is what is happening and what's going to happen to human beings. And most of all, they care about what happens to human beings like them. 
And this kind of speaks to another sort of problem around climate stories, I think, which is that a lot of audiences are super fatigued by stories around disasters that are happening on the other side of the world. And if you're looking for, you know, big engagement on a climate story, you very much need to center your readers in it, like make it relevant to the people that you're talking to. Find the people who are in your audience that are being affected by climate change and tell their stories. And then finally, and I guess sort of quite relatedly to that last point, I think people have very much become kind of numb to the constant stream of disasters that not just the news presents, you know, all of our TV shows and movies and books are about dystopias and disasters as well. And in the work that I do at Possible, we try and very much focus our storytelling around solutions instead, around like positive stories. And that's not necessarily to give people hope because I think NASA scientist Kate Marvel does like has has written a very good article on this where she sort of points out that a lot of experts on climate change and environmental change don't actually necessarily have a lot of hope, but they do have courage, the courage to kind of do the right things without necessarily the assurance of having a happy ending. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, um, paying, I wonder, uh, picking up what with what Duncan just said, you know, it's quite challenging for journalists to move beyond this fear-evoking headline-grabbing narrative that we often see play out in the news and, and as Duncan said, Netflix series in books. So I just wonder from your perspective, um, you know, at The Continentalist as a data journalist there, how do you approach your environmental coverage? And, you know, what are are, are people in, in the region um, interested to sort of delve into these stories in a visual way? Hmm. Yeah, I, thanks for that question. And I think everything Duncan said, I really resonated with is exactly what uh, we have formed as a general approach. Um, and I also recently, you know, I recently attended the International Journalism Festival in Persia, and they had an entire session about how you could make, or how you should be reporting in the climate um, in a way that translate to real impact. And I think one of the things that they mentioned was that guilt really doesn't work. Um, or, you know, using these like, the world is on fire sort of, you know, headlines doesn't work anymore because people just tune out and they're not really interested in that. So I think for us too, we try to approach our stories with empathy and put ourselves in our audience's shoes. As Duncan said, you really need to find that relatability factor and imagine yourself to be a reader and try to understand what they might be concerned with in terms of climate change and find even far away things um, that might impact them or relate to them. So we try to um, talk about things that will have a, that they will have a direct interest in and use that as a sort of a jumping off board to then perhaps talk about other things. Um, and we use language that avoids making them feel guilty or this sort of doomsday messaging. And we focus a lot on not hope, but empowering. So giving them actions at the end of a story on what they can do to change the situation, be it talking to their elected representatives, you know, being more conscious about their own consumption habits or really pushing and educating people around them as well. So we always, um, at the end of every story, we leave the sort of little actionable items that they can do in relation to that specific topic that we are focusing on. And some of our most effective um, climate stories have actually been what we call micro stories. And these are like these um, like 10 square, um, you know, Instagram decks that we post on social media. And we don't even publish these on our website. So they are not these like long form visual interactive pieces. Um, and we find that actually it's a lot better in connecting with the younger audience, especially Gen Zs, because of their short attention span. They are already on social media. So it's easier to, you know, sort of reach them where they are instead of forcing them to leave the platform to read something um, else that they might see very far away and we um, and also there's a certain like viability factor they can share it on their own Instagram account really easily and people can click from there um, and read it um, read further as well if they're interested so we've covered deep dives on Singapore's energy situation for example and we use things like language like you know if you've been feeling hot recently it's not just you, it is climate change. And then using that as sort of a platform to jump um, into the science stuff, like explaining how we're between monsoon seasons, um, how uh, despite seasonal change, this is not an abnormality. This is, uh, you know, like a change in major temperature. So we, we sort of go through the data and um, unpack that for them. 
So I think a lot of it is about educating, empowering, giving them things that they can do um, and bringing the content to them rather than forcing them to read something they're not particularly interested in. Yeah. That's very interesting, Peng. Um, And I think it's really interesting to see how things have moved on from like 10 years ago, where I think a lot of people who covered environmental issues, particularly around climate change, they'd write about a study that came out. Like that would be the data that they would cover, right? Something that was abysmal and, you know, wine is going to become more expensive or coffee is no longer going to exist. Like all these kind of dire scenarios that are trying to move people, but really don't. Uh, It's not about necessarily that kind of information. It's about educating people and like you said, empowering them. And also, you know, pointing to Duncan uh, mentioning that article by Kate Marvel on, you know, we need courage, not hope. So it's it's really interesting to see how that's evolved. Um, Rodolfo, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. Um, I understand you gave a pretty incredible talk at Outlier, the DataViz conference on how you can use DataViz to sort of explain the invisible to audiences. And I just wondered if you could just tell us a bit about that and how that relates to climate change. Sure, yeah. Uh, That talk was mostly derived from the research that I've been doing at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. And and there I'm investigating how the climate crisis is portrayed in DataViz. And I'm trying to find some uh, theoretical framework or theoretical ideas that can help prompt better visualizations of the climate. And, and, and that research was mostly motivated by uh, this sort of discomfort that I've been feeling when designing charts of climate data, which is when you're, after you've made the 10th or 20th map with uh, data of deforestation in the Amazon, for example, um, I would start to consider if there are any other new and more effective ways of delivering this message to the general audience that can really get them to feel involved with the problem and get a glimpse of the of its scale, right? And and I think that that data viz in the, in a sense is a fertile ground to work with climate issues, uh, not only because climate change is a phenomenon that is very much attested through data. I mean, we have dozens of IPCC reports with very strong scientific consensus and a bunch of charts and them showing us this. Uh, but also because I think data is, uh, is really helpful in getting a reader to come up with a mental model of the world to help them grasp a very complex issue in this sort of simple and manageable uh, representation. Uh, in that same outlier conference, uh, John Stuart Murdoch from the Financial Times showed us the results of some research on how charts are really effective in changing minds when it comes to climate change. Uh, and that is mostly because, like it or not, that charts do seem to have this sort of authority and credibility factor to them, or at least they're understood this way by the reader. Uh, and that is something that we should be making responsible use of to deliver the messages that need to be delivered. Uh, so what I'd say in terms of uh, what that talk entails is that uh, the, the general idea was that I was trying to call attention to the fact that climate change is this hugely complex problem, like a more complex than we can even grasp. There's a bunch of interconnected and in ecologically interacting data points and whatnot, and it can be easy to lose the sense of scale and report on really specific issues without calling attention to how they interact with larger climate issues or with the bigger picture. So I think it's important for us as data journalists to actively try to take a step back and always try to form uh, a bigger picture or as big a picture as we can. Absolutely. And I wonder if in Brazil, are there specific challenges to the region around climate change that resonate more with, with that audience? Yeah, there definitely are, um, especially during the uh, last four years with Bolsonaro's term. Uh, most of the reporters that I know who are working with climate data are denouncing, for example, uh, corruption in the cattle industry or deforestation in the Amazon and land grabbers. And most of these issues are deeply related to the preservation of the Amazon and therefore to the larger climate situation but also they're related to very powerful uh, institutions and people in Brazil. And uh, I know a bunch of these journalists who report on these sorts of issues 
and receive death threats and receive uh, harassment from all sorts of people who are uh, obviously economically uh, interested in keeping things as they are. And that's just, I'm, I mean, that's probably one of the most flagrant cases of uh, a really big challenge because it really poses a threat to your well-being. Um, but there are a bunch of them because uh, climate reporting in Brazil in, in general, uh, most of the time, some of the publications who are more, um, let's say, invested in this, in this, uh, in this subject can get labeled as uh, activist publication and they're not, uh, their journalistic credibility can be sort of uh, questioned because of their interest in this issue. Uh, and the, the, the media ecosystem sort of has, still has this idea that you have to be kind of neutral when reporting on a specific, on a certain subject. And that can really damage the credibility of those who are doing important work and calling attention to situations that need to be denounced. And I wonder if we could shift more to talking a bit about some of the stories that all of you have worked on um, paying at the Continentalist. Um, you recently published a piece about rare earths and clean tech. And I found this to be a really interesting story because on the one hand, we want to save the environment through clean tech, yet it's being exploited even further through this medium. So, um, yeah, I wonder if you could just talk us through about that story. And also, I really like the way you use the periodic table for some of the visualizations. Yeah, um, thanks for that. I have to, um, I guess, be very upfront to say that that was one of the stories that um, the actual Continentalist team didn't work very deeply on. We were quite fortunate that a team of individuals called Myanmar Data Citizens approached us and said that they've pretty much built the entire story and they've come up with everything. And we really just gave stuff. Uh, we gave some, you know, final sort of editorial touches to the piece before we published it. Um, but the entire credit is really to them. And the reason why they couldn't publish it on their own was, is, is, you know, completely what um, Rodolfo was saying there would be threats to their personal well-being if they were to put their personal names on the piece um, and publicize that. Um, so I think it was very essential for, for them to protect their identities while still being able to uh, move the needle on the topic, which is why they decided to approach us where we have, I guess, you know, it doesn't affect us if we publish it because we're not based in Myanmar um, and we'd be able to talk about it quite honestly. Um, so that's how that collaboration came together. Um, and we do have one reporter a local reporter from Kachin State in Myanmar, Maran, who's willing to put his name on it um, to, to so give, give it more credibility. Um, and, and I shared this question with them a little bit and asked them, I guess, like, you know, how do they think about the story? I think for them, it comes back to that relatability. Again, as you mentioned, a lot of people don't know that the drive for clean tech or renewable energy requires further mining. It requires materials and elements that will cause further destruction of the earth. Um, and often in countries and communities, they have very little protection or very little um, protections against these things happening, not just for the degradation of the environment, but also communities who live in the environment and will be affected by those measures. Um, and I think, the, for example, they, they wanted to highlight to the world that, you know, Myanmar is, I think, the, the, the top exporter of, or producer of rare earths in the world. And this drive for renewable energy is really going to severely affect them. Um, and then coming back to what we've already shared about how do we make this very far away concept relatable to people? That's where they thought of using the mobile phone as a sort of an entry point. These are all elements that live already in your phone. So every time you use your phone, these are things that are required and they likely come from Myanmar or you know another country that produces these um, minerals. So I think that was the angle that they were going for. Um, and they really wanted to show how this environmental toll also affects communities that live in these environments and are also at the same time going through a very brutal civil war, um, you know, where they're kind of caught in between two really large sort of developments. Um, with regards to the periodic table, I think for them, um, the, I mean, for me also, when I look at it, it's kind of, you know, when, when you look at, when you think about, like, okay, I'm not a science person at all, uh, despite my background, despite now my career in data journalism, but I think for me, like when you tell me what the elements are, my brain immediately goes like, huh? Like, what are these? Where are they from? I don't understand them. They're really abstract. So I think putting them on the periodic table kind of brings you back to school a little bit. And you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, I, I roughly remember what this is. And I guess now I can make sense of where these um, elements are. 
Um, and I think for them, um, what they said was they wanted to demystify that a little bit and encourage readers to dig deeper because they knew that a lot of technologies that we love um, and sort of depend or we love and use depend a lot of these um, complicated supply chains, um, sourcing rare earths around the world. And, you know, um, iPhones are nice and shiny, but if you peer beneath the veneer of these specific components, there's a dire um, and urgent story to be told. And they wanted to connect this fact uh, with the series of rare earth elements um, into a single cell in periodic tables. Um, and then when you expand the single cell out, you get a whole series of elements that modern life as we know it depends on. So that was the little note that they left for me um, in explaining how they came to design their periodic table. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, understanding that there are consequences, you know, to this renewable, this demand for renewable energy. Um, Duncan and Rodolfo, I know both of you have designed data visualizations for not-for-profits around this issue. So I just wonder, what are some of the key challenges, you know, in effectively communicating about climate change data to the public? Like, what have you found has worked? Maybe we could start with you, Duncan. Sure. I mean... Just like Rodolfo pointed out earlier, I think that the most important, the most powerful thing that data visualization can do in terms of climate com communication is just give credibility to the science. You know, you can say something like, summers are hotter than they used to be. And there will absolutely be people who say in response, no, I remember some very hot summers when I was young. But if you've got data that shows exactly how hot summers were when they were young and how much hotter they are today, and you can present that in a clear and understandable way, like through a chart, then I think it really genuinely helps people to understand that the situation that we're in today is genuinely unprecedented. And of course, you know, the next step is getting people, especially people with power, to shift from just understanding climate as an issue to actually doing something about it. But that's a, big, a, a bigger question. Absolutely. Um, and I know like, I think that the fires and the earthquakes in recent years um, have probably made this more real for certain people, or at least people I know who've been climate skeptics in the past are now like, oh my God, why did I listen to you 20 years ago You know, when you were really talking about this issue or working on this issue? So it's, it's, it's amazing how like lived experience can actually change people. And then when they look at a chart or a visualization, it kind of is like, oh, okay, Here's the data, and these scientists say this is happening. You know, um, Rodolfo, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, like, you know, what what you found from your time working for with not for profits on visualizations in this area. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that climate change is this sort of uh, issue that sits in a weird spot in our heads and in the general audience's heads because. At the same time as this huge monumental shift in how our planet works, this really geological force, but also something that seeps into our normal daily lives with our consumption habits, and our choices and lifestyle, our experience of the weather, as you were saying, you know, the summers and, and these extreme events like storms and catastrophes. So it's at the same time, this the biggest, most important thing that's happening in the world and the littlest thing that you may brush aside as an afterthought when deciding on what you're going to eat, for example, or how you move around. And because of this, um, I feel I feel it's really easy for the general audience to uh, feel that, that numbness that Duncan was talking about. Uh, if we as people who work with climate data may feel numb as well, it's only natural that anyone feel that way because we don't want to think about this. We don't want to go through those feelings of uncertainty and apprehension and fear. And, and what I think that data vis can do well in, in my work with those NGOs, I think um, it, it's kind of in that ballpark, is tackle, tackling this numbness obstacle um, is in a way that we can uh, include the reader in a context of what's being visualized. You know, uh, as Duncan was saying, like how this relates to your uh, experience specifically, uh, we can try as much as we can to tell the reader, uh, here's this important situation that's happening, here's the data we have of it, and here's where you fit in. Here's what you have to do with that. Uh, there's a great project by a publication called the, the Parametric Press, which is called Your Personal Carbon History. And I think it's really interested in its approach because it interactively invites you to input data, such as your date of birth 
uh, or to guess some of your preconceptions about climate data. And then it corrects you on those guesses and positions you in the history of climate change. Like what were the CO2 emissions like when you were born and what are they now? Uh, these sorts of, of uh, interactive strategies to include the reader, uh, I think are really interesting to snap them out of that numbness and see themselves in that data. And there's many other different projects that do something similar, but uh, this one, I think it's really interesting. It seems like some of the activists I've spoken to, environmental activists, they think that it were it's not necessarily helpful to focus on the individual and what they're doing. It's better to focus on the business community because a lot of this responsibility has kind of been shifted to the individual and making us feel disempowered in a way when really large carbon emitters, they their their footprint is larger and maybe they can have a bigger impact on on making change happen. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that as someone who's working with possible a climate charity. So my take on the individual action versus system change thing is that it's too late to just pick one or the other one. We need both and we need a lot of both as soon as possible. Like and and of course obviously one can't really happen without the other one, you know? Individuals don't change their behavior very much without the system changing. And the system can't change unless there's popular support for it. So we absolutely need both of those things at the same time, you know? A possible some of our campaigns focus on getting politicians to implement regulations on system change. And some of our campaigns focus on, I don't know, getting people to try living without a car for a month, for example, um, which is obviously about behavior change. We absolutely need both of those things. Rodolfo, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the large-scale infographic you designed for the not-for-profit, showing how urban life relates to climate change. Sure. Um, that was a project that I did last year for a Brazilian NGO called Rede Interação. Um, and their work is mostly focused in how climate change relates to housing issues in Brazil. And that was a very interesting project that I got to work on because the idea was to produce this print infographic and A1 sized folded sheet uh, that had to be as accessible and understandable as possible because it was going to, going to be distributed to populations from uh, poor and disenfranchised communities in cities of the Amazon, like uh, Santarém, Pará, the Pará state. So um, after doing the research uh, and writing an initial draft of the text of the, the, the publication, we iterated on the design of the infographic with these communities in workshops and focus groups. And we... I mean, the, their input was not only uh, helping us adjust the language and the tone of the piece to make it really accessible, but also giving us the opportunity to hear from them what they thought was the way that climate change was really affecting their daily lives and living in cities in, in the Amazon. And so we could include those experiences and mention those subject matters in the, in the infographic as well. And, and it was really interesting to have this layer of dialogue between reader and designer as a means to, to produce something that these populations can, could really see themselves in. Uh, and I'm glad that the, the, the final publication was well received and put up on the walls of classrooms and community centers in those cities and kind of took a life of its own. And I wonder if we could sort of go through and, and talk through some of our favorite projects, uh, stuff that you've worked on yourself or other things that you admire and you've seen um, paying, do you want to start? So in, within the content listing, we have a couple of in-house writers that covers different topics and usually climate issues or environmental issues is covered by somebody with a background in their respective um, topic. So um, that's our assistant editor, Gwyneth Ching, and she has a background in like environmental science. So that's traditionally her deal. But I decided to sort of dip my toes or fingers into it last year because it was really, really getting very warm in Singapore and it was beginning to bother me. Um, so I thought maybe there's something I can do here similar to what New York Times has done about, you know, night nights getting warmer and not just days um, and helping people to, to, to really, you know, empathize with, okay, like the temperature change you're feeling now is not just seasonal. It's not just one random hot, as I could say, not one random hot summer. It's a consistent um, increase in temperature. Um, so that led me to then deep dive uh, into, you know, 40 years worth of daily temperature data. And I had a lot of fun. 
I think both cleaning the data, but also topic talking to different experts about it. And that one I collaborated with the local climate scientist and also with a local climate um, influencer or activist. She runs a really popular Instagram account and we posted it on both of our Instagram accounts together to get more people looking at the topic. And in that particular story, I used, I think, four or five different charts, including, you know, one of those, like, I think heat maps where you color every day of the year and you can show visually that it's getting warmer and warmer. Um, each year in Singapore, I think it's one of those unique places where we don't have seasonal changes. So it's either hot or really, really hot. Um, so the scale was also something that I think was um, really difficult to play with. But I drew a lot of inspiration from what other people have really done. New York Times, Reuters, for example, um, they've done wonderful stories um, using different sort of, I think, you know, visualizations to, to, to create um, empathy around this data. And, and I was just a lot of, you know, emulation um, and learning from what other people have done. But that was a very, I think, I enjoyed that incredibly because I educated myself a lot. And I also got to work with, I think, different people in trying to bring um, that story to life for our readers. And it, it remains today actually one of our most read um, stories on our Instagram. Like it's It's got, you know, quite a, a high number of likes compared to everything else. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, Rodolfo? I think that uh, there are some projects that I've worked on that I, I consider, I'm, I don't know, uh, some of my favorites, uh, both because of the uh, design and database solutions that I've used, but there are some that I consider my favorites because of the impact that they had. And I think these ones are uh, kind of special to me. And last year, I got the chance to collaborate with a, an outlet here in, in Brazil uh, called Suma Uma. They're based on the Amazon and they're published in English, uh, Spanish, and Portuguese. And they were the first to kind of uh, deflagrate the, let's say, the, the humanitarian crisis regarding the Yanomami indigenous communities in Brazil, in, uh, in, in Northern Brazil, because they uh, got their hands on a bunch of data that was new and uh, no one knew about it, uh, that gave a real uh, dire, glimpse of the situation of the Yanomami who were actually uh, famished and starving and, and uh, over there. And what this uh, project I think was so special to me because after we published the data and the charts themselves are pretty straightforward, you know, there's maps, there's uh, some bar charts, some area charts, uh, but we really got to tinkering with, the, with those charts to make them Back as heavy a punch as they could because the data itself was uh, pretty heavy uh, with the situation that it was depicting. And uh, I really liked that project because of the impact that it had because uh, it really started this whole nationwide conversation about the uh, situation of the Yanomami indigenous population and even got, for example, uh, current President Lula to fly to their territory and mention in his own social media the, the very numbers that we published uh, firsthand. So uh, I think to me that really was um, uh, one of those moments where I felt that I was really contributing to some uh, some changes in a situation that, that relates to all of those issues with climate change. Uh, but I also like to mention some project that, a project that is not mine. Uh, I'm a big fan, like probably most of us are, uh, Giorgia Lupi, <laughs> uh, the Italian information designer. And last year, she put out a project uh, called Plastic Air, which I think was really cool and inventive. Uh, it's an interactive website visualization that aims to provide this sort of magical lens that allows you to see all the microplastics that are drifting in the air uh, and how they're associated with the industrial production and uh, consumption of different goods. Uh, and I think it's a great example of DataViz that's simple, elegant, and fun to interact with, and at the same time delivers a message really well. For example, uh, after you click around a bunch and send a lot of microplastics in the air and you have all those little particles drifting, uh, the website has a button labeled clear uh, to remove the microplastics. And when you click on it, nothing happens. And the text, some text comes up saying, did you really think that would work? Uh, microplastics are very durable. They're, they're, they're not going anywhere or something like that. And I find those little design decisions really effective and, and interesting in, in getting you to get involved with the with the message. And I think that lends perfectly to what your talk is about, right? Like trying to show the invisible to to audiences, and then also getting them to change, right? 
Duncan, I just wonder if you could weigh in here. Yeah, so I've got I've got a couple of projects I'd like to talk about. I hope it's okay to do too. So over the last couple of years, I've been experimenting a lot with sound uh, through my data sonification studio, uh, which is called Loud Numbers. And sound is fascinating as a medium for data storytelling because it is so much more visceral than a chart can be. So to just explain briefly for people who aren't necessarily familiar with sonification, it's about mapping data to sound parameters instead of visual parameters. So like in a graph, maybe a larger number might be represented by a longer bar, but in a sonification, a larger number might be represented by a louder noise, for example, or a higher pitch or something like that. And here's the cool thing about sonification, right? You can make a sound that is so loud that it actually hurts, right? So that people are covering their ears in discomfort. That is not something that you can do with a bar chart. And obviously that's a technique that you you need to use quite sparingly. But the point I'm making is that, yeah, sound can deliver these experiences that visuals just can't do. These, these sort of very visceral experiences and also emotional experiences where you use particular scales or chords or tempos or timbres or samples that have emotional resonance with people. So we did a story about climate change as part of um, the first episode of the Loud Numbers podcast, which if people are listening to this podcast, then you can find by just searching for Loud Numbers. Um, and we made a techno track that is based on the records of a sweepstake that is held every year in a small town in Alaska, where they bet on when the ice in their river is going to break up each year. And they've been doing it for more than 100 years. And today, because of climate change, you can hear that the, the river is breaking up earlier and earlier each year. And we piled tons of emotional associations into this, right? There's these associations that people have around techno music, you know, about rigid, predictable tempos and rhythms. And in our track, at the end of the track, those things start to break down, just like the Earth's systems are breaking down. And we also put like this siren over the top that represents the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it gets louder and louder throughout the track, literally sounding the alarm about climate change. So yeah, I think that sound can very much help make data stories more relatable and impactful for general audiences. And then the other project that I wanted to mention was um, a piece of work that I did, uh, I think it was last year, for Possible's Missed Targets report. This was a report where we analyzed 50 different sustainability targets that the aviation industry had set itself since the year 2000. And we found that all but one of those targets has either been missed or abandoned or completely forgotten about. And so I made this chart that plots these promises over time, showing when the target was announced, when the goal year was, and when the target was abandoned or replaced. And every line in this chart ends in either a big X or a big question mark, apart from one of them, which was a, a very easy and ambitious target that EasyJet set. Um, and I think what, what this shows is that the aviation industry uses sustainability targets incredibly cynically to lobby politicians to allow air travel to keep growing and growing without proper regulation of the emissions. It is a total scam. So yeah, anytime you hear a company or a government or anyone else set a sustainability target, it's so important to remember that these targets are completely worthless if you don't have a credible plan to achieve it and have that plan actually get put into action. Absolutely. And politicians love these targets because it makes them look good but it allows them to kick the can down the road and not be accountable to it. Completely. And like you said, the aviation industry is benefiting hugely from this, um, especially as we see more and more cheap air travel kind of expand across Europe, uh, at least where we are here in Europe. It seems to be a lot of that. And when I when I did visit Asia, I noticed there was a burgeoning industry there too. And I'm sure it's the same in uh South America as well, Rodolfo. Um, but no, seriously, if, if you guys haven't listened to uh, the Loud Numbers podcast, it's it's really, really good. And it's really, really, really well done. So, And we've had, you could also listen to a podcast where we interview Duncan about that um, and and um, his colleague who, who are just, yeah, they just have such an interesting way of looking at this. So yeah, kudos to, to you for, for those stories. 
Duncan, and for educating the industry in this, because I think people are really perk up when you say sonification, because it does really allow you to bridge that gap uh, and in understanding, right? It, it's such an interesting space to be exploring right now. There's so many different cool things you can do with it in so many different ways, especially if the journalistic work that you're doing is in an audio medium, you absolutely should be looking at sonification. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and I wonder um, if we could talk a little bit about what journalists should be mindful of, you know, when it comes to designing for accuracy and accessibility and visualizing scientific data. Obviously, accessibility, audio could be a great way um, to reach blind people, right? Or, or people who are visually impaired. Yeah, I think so. I think sonification could be great for that, for sure. Um, I, th I think that the biggest thing that I'm concerned about at the moment when it comes to the media and climate change isn't so much questions about accuracy, because I think journalists have all, always done a pretty good job on accuracy. But it's more about kind of understanding that, so as I think it's Jamie Alexander says that every job is a climate job, right? And I think that that's absolutely as true in news organizations as it is in the wider world. It's not just the environment desk that reports on climate change these days. The business desk needs to understand climate. The politics desk does. The arts desk needs to. And I think the technology desk really needs to understand climate. And I say that as a former technology journalist, you know, you could absolutely see this. I think the the big NFT craze a couple of years ago. And I'm sure that, you know, you all, as well as many of the people listening will know that crypto by design uses an insane and totally wasteful amount of energy. And that energy translates directly into carbon emissions. And NFTs are powered by crypto. And so they have a huge carbon footprint too. But I saw so many articles that were hyping up this technology while totally failing to mention that it is working in the complete opposite direction of our attempts to stabilize our increasingly unstable climate. And so what I would like to see journalists be more mindful of is just, I don't know, in every story they write, I think, is just asking, is the thing I'm writing about taking humankind closer to extinction or not? And that is kind of an insane thing to need to say, I think, but it's just the reality of the world that we're living in now. Yeah, I think the systemic aspect of this, like you said, really needs to be taken into account, right? For every story we do. And yeah. yeah, I think there's just a lot of people who don't really understand how computing power works and how we store this. Or, or who think that it that it lies outside their beat in some way. And so, you know, they can just leave it to other people to sort out. You can't, not in 2023. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can I just add something? Uh, I was just going to mention that in this past year, I read an interesting paper that was published in a journal called Gaia uh, by some German researchers. And what grabbed me was the title, which was, it's not enough to be right about the climate, was the, the title of the paper. And the paper was really direct in making the point that uh, we have climate denialism as a reality, not because people don't think that the science regarding climate change is not accurate enough or something like that, but rather because it's not a scientific problem, but a political problem. Uh, it's something that we have to tackle with, the, with that lens. Um, and th that, that paper was also making the argument that the debate with these decision makers and the people who actually can make a big change when it comes to climate change is not whether it exists or not, but rather how do we make that economical, cultural, and societal shift that needs to happen towards a carbon neutral world, for example. And how do we do it fairly? How do we do it fairly? And how do we do it as fast as the urgency of the situation demands us to? It's a really tricky question to answer. And there's lots of different issues that relate, as Duncan was mentioned, to relate directly to climate change, climate justice, racism, misogyny. And I think it's important to connect all those dots as much as possible and focus on how uh, on what are the short-term changes that we can make under what amount of pressure. And maybe our uh, our jobs as data journalists who work with climate is kind of to put that pressure on those, what is actionable right now? Uh, what is, we're leaving the houses on fire. We have to do something about it right now. Uh, it's not really important if we do the, the best, the, the most uh, efficient, we have to do something. <laughs> We have to start moving. And, and I think that um, connecting all those dots really uh, helps with that. Can I just jump in here quickly as well? I just wanted to comment that I think I 
I'm a huge fan of both these individuals who have just shared a lot about their own work. And I found I've discovered them both through um, Outlier or encountered their work through Outlier. And I think Rodolfo gave a really amazing talk recently in Outlier. And the big point that he made was about data humanism. And I think that is probably a better lens to take on what we are trying to do rather than accessibility just for the sake of accessibility because we're not just trying to make sure that somebody can process the data but they can also understand and, and empathize with it on a human level and knowing that it's not so much accuracy but taking away the big picture point that these numbers are happening on a scale that our scales aren't even prepared for um, is one of the things that I think um, we have a responsibility to to highlight and show, which is why I think a lot of the data visualization conversation has also moved into how can we um, build more emotions? How can we make it more visceral, um, not just through visual imagery, but also through sound or through emotions and through feelings? Um, and I encourage everyone to watch uh, Rodolfo's talk when it's out. Um, it was really very powerful. Um, and I think for us too, in, in Content List, we try to, you know, jump off points where we talk about, you know, how this is impacting you. Again, coming back to this is not just something that's far away and detached. And I think a lot of people, especially the older generation, would be like, ah, it's not going to happen in my lifetime or it's very abstract and it's far away and they feel like we can't see these consequences yet. So it's also a lot about how can we show these consequences in a way that is um, a bit more pronounced that will make them feel that a little discomfort or, or more discomfort but without you know, making them feel so powerless that they can't do anything about it. I think it's like finding that, that niche, that, that very small point um, and, and really honing in on that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, it's just very interesting to see how it's gone from like 10 years ago where we were trying to convince people that climate change does exist. And now it's, it does exist. So what do we do about it? And how do we kind of spur people to take action and um now with solutions journalism out there and journalists a little bit less um scared of maybe going down the activist route in, in that approach um uh, it's not necessarily an activist route but it's more of like paying was saying empowering people um and providing them with the education to then understand okay what can i do now because otherwise what is journalism for, really? We're, we're trying to educate people and tell them what's happening in the world and also make informed decisions and behave in a certain way, maybe, based on this information. Um, I, I love the idea of the data humanism angle and, and how it's okay to make people feel some emotion around this stuff that is very important and could lead to our extinction. <laughs> Um, so I just thought we would wrap up by perhaps going through, you know, what some ideas about what you think um, is the future of data visualization, particularly in the context of climate solutions reporting. Rather than try and make a sort of crystal ball-y prediction, I, I'll just sort of say what I would like to see happen, <laughs> which is basically that more journalists use data and visualization to engage politicians and businesses and other people with power about the sustainability promises that they're making and whether they are actually meeting them. You know, are these promises good enough? How are you going to meet them? I want to see journalists set out the situation that we are in, like clearly and truthfully, set out what can be done to fix it clearly and truthfully, you know, the solutions focus, and then ask, why are we not rolling these solutions out fast enough? We have all the solutions that we need to fix our climate. We just need to see those solutions used. And I think journalism can play a huge role in making that happen. Brilliant. Paying? Um, and it's only, I think it's a little difficult for me to add to this in the sense that um, it's probably just more of what we've already been doing. And I completely agree with Duncan that it's a lot more focusing on like, it doesn't, I think even that like within Singapore, we're, we're already rather the region, the Asian region in general, we're really far behind in any sort of data journalism in general and much, much further behind when it comes to climate journalism. Um, and I think a lot of the fixation is still, oh, you know, there's a new IPCC report. Oh, now it's the COP and now is now is the time to talk about data or now is the time to talk about climate. Where really it should be 
pretty much an everyday topic in every single piece of news. Like, um, as everyone has mentioned, it's not just a climate section. It's you know, it's a problem on every in, on, for every news desk. And I think it's more of encouraging that to happen. Um, and encouraging more conversation around solutions rather than um just talking about how bad things are. Um, but also empowering people to feel that they have an ability to change things, even if it's, you know, conserving energy at home or if it's lobbying, you know, a representative to do something or demanding better action from, you know, their elected representatives in the upcoming election. Um, there are many, many routes that this can go down. To me, as we were talking about emotions, for example, to me, what I would like to see is uh, stronger data visualization, like data visualization that's not scared of really uh, packing a punch, more direct and more impactful and emotionally compelling data viz. To me, it has to be the way to go if we are to raise awareness to this issue. As you were mentioning, Tara, uh, if we are not allowed to feel emotions when reading data about our own extension, there's something wrong with the way we're communicating this data because we are very much implied in that data that we are communicating. So uh, we we're already living. We we are already living in in climate change, and it's less like a problem to be solved. There's no solving climate change. It's more of a situation to mitigate and also adapt to as much and and as quickly as possible. And in that sense, that that involves making some really hard decisions relating to our daily lives and habits and how our economies are structured and how the flows of energy and everything else. And if there's one area that I think can drive home those arguments to me is data viz because of how open it is to all those different uh, kinds of uh, expressions of communication. We have data sonifications, we have uh, maps and all a bunch of different tools that we can make use of to really drive home the point that this is happening right now and we kind of have to brush aside those dogmatic views on data viz as this sort of like technical and austere and really uh, accurate and scientific uh, discipline and embrace it as something that we as humans use to communicate and what we need to communicate right now is pretty dire so we need to get moving and I don't know to me it's stronger data viz. Brilliant. And would anyone else like to add any anything else? <laughs> it just just something really small. I think earlier, Tara, you said that you know we shouldn't be, you know, afraid to use emotions in data stories or even in any story actually, even in journalism. And and be, you know, going off what Rodolfo said, I would actually say it's absolutely necessary at this point. If it doesn't, you know, move you to want to propel some, I mean, emotions are what would push you to do something, right? Um, to take specific action. And I think at this point, it's, yeah, an absolute necessary element in reporting about the climate, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you all so much for coming on Conversations with Data. It was an absolute pleasure hearing your insights on this very important topic. And um, I wish you the best in your data viz sonification uh, reporting. Thank you so much, Tara. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.